You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello, everyone. Thanks and for downloading another episode of the uh, Christian Humanist Profiles podcast. My name is Danny Anderson of the Sectarian Review podcast, also in the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Today I'm joined by Elijah Sigler, who um, has uh, edited and written the introduction and an essay for a uh, really interesting book about the Cohen brothers. It's called Cohen, Framing Religion in Amoral Order. Uh, and I'd like to uh, welcome Elijah to the podcast today. Elijah, how are you doing? Uh, great. Uh, Danny, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I really enjoyed your book uh, very much. It was a very entertaining book for me to read. Um, I think I mentioned to you before that our department here at Mount Aloysius College is uh, has been doing and is con- going to continue a, s- a film series for students on Coen Brothers into next year. And I found these essays to be really useful uh, in, in prepping the introductory notes for that uh, for the students and and to give us really some great material uh, to have conversations about those films afterwards so on that level I think the book was a great success Um, thanks well let me just begin what drew you to the Coen brothers work um, first as a film goer and then maybe as a scholar and then how did this really excellent book of essays come about uh, well, thanks for praising the book and for finding it useful. I, I, it definitely came out of the book itself. Came out of um, my own classroom experience. I mean, a lot you know, a lot of my writing comes out of things that I'd like to teach. So they're they're based around um, you know their their usefulness to a to a you know an, an educated undergraduate audience. Um, so the more you use it, uh, you know, in those types of situations, the better. I first uh, came about the Cone Brothers. Came at the Cone Brothers because I. I think probably their third film, which was Miller's Crossing, was the first film of theirs that I actually saw in the theaters uh, in 1990. Um, I think I was a sophomore in college at the time, and it was a great movie. And then just a year after uh, that, or maybe two years after, uh, their next film came out, their fourth film, Barton Fink, which I which I fell in love with, and I remember writing a review of that for the uh, my college newspaper. And from then on, you know, I was first in line whenever uh, their movies, you know, the movie movies came to the theater um and uh why you know all their movies are are intelligent they're funny they're interesting uh you know the reasons that i love the cone brothers are probably the reasons that so many so many of your listeners love them um so many uh i think i, I found that a lot of um intellectuals you know academics love their movies because um, the cone brothers are clearly really really intelligent guys uh one of them ethan has a you know philosophy degree from princeton uh joel has a has a film degree from nyu um they're very um knowledgeable on a variety of you know different uh, philosophical systems uh they have a, a deep jewish knowledge because of their own upbringing so they bring all that to their films you know and of course a deep knowledge of film film history and genre um so there's so much going on in all their films and uh eventually i just said you know i mean i'm i i my my uh career is is uh, i'm kind of fortunate because i get to do research on stuff that i really like to watch you know i've written several essays on on some of my favorite television shows uh and television genres and another i, I published an essay on another one of my favorite filmmakers david cronenberg mm-hmm. so um you know, it's it's. I, I'm fortunate that I love their movies, and why don't I why don't I try to organize a book on it? And so the book came together. You know, I never really thought I had it in in me to write an entire book on the Coen Brothers and and uh, and religion. But um, I knew I had a lot of smart friends, and I also knew of other people that I you know I didn't know personally, but I knew how they wrote and what they wrote on, and thought they would write essays. And pretty much everyone I asked to contribute to this volume. Um, agreed readily and the whole thing came together really quickly which is kind of unusual for an edited volume sometimes they drag on for years and years as you try to find people to to write chapters or people promise to write chapters and they they don't deliver you know they're they're a year or two late in delivering but but these the you know the the people that that wrote the the individual chapters are just were all super talented and because they all love the coen brothers so it didn't feel like a lot of work for them 
Right. Um, and I guess I should have said at the beginning, you are a, a professor of religion at the College, College of Charleston. That's correct. Yes. I'm uh, what, an associate professor of religious studies, the current chair of the department. And, you know, my academic training is in American religious history. Uh, but I also teach a lot of classes on religion and film, religion and popular culture and, you know, a lot of uh, introductory type classes. Yeah. And, and for that reason, I think that the Coens are really a, a perfect fit for what you do then, uh, because I even uh, we'll talk more about the chronology of their films mm-hmm. uh, from the very beginning of their work. You can see religious concerns. Um, uh, and that's mm-hmm. obviously why this book exists. Um, yeah. And another thing about the Coens that as you were talking, I remember I, as I'm thinking about I can't think of a better body of work to teach in a film class because they're so knowledgeable about film history and film form. Uh, Their films really lend themselves very well, I think, to that kind of classroom analysis of how film actually works. And so, um, yeah, well, I found the organization of the book to be both clever and useful. And those two things don't necessarily always go together. (laughs) Uh, But uh, can you describe the the book's organization and tell us what you were intending and thinking? Sure. Let me look at the table. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Thank you. I'm. I'm proud of it too. I think I, I did the table of. Con- I'm not a. I'm not a great writer and I'm not a great editor, but I. I. I make a great table of contents. That's really my my, <laughs> my forte there. So, um, so I wanted, of course, the. Um, I wanted this book to sort of function as a as like a as a handbook or a companion, so that every film was covered in order. Um, so it's the kind of thing that you could right, use as a teaching tool, or you could keep it by your you know by your TV watching chair and kind of watch a Coen Brothers movie and then read the essay and and watch the movie again. You know. Um, so um, unlike, you know, I mean, for example, there's a series in that endless series of um, uh, philosophy and popular culture. Sure. Uh, you probably know, you know, it's like 80 volumes. And one of the volumes is on the Coen brothers. And there's some good essays in there. But, you know, it's it's um, the organization is pretty loose. Some of the films get covered twice, some not at all. Some of the essays cover more than one film and there's some overlap. Um, so I, I wanted this book to, to have a kind of to, to be more or less and it is, except for maybe in one case, chronological from their earliest film to their latest film. And every every film gets one essay and every essay gets one film. Um, but then I didn't just if if and if that were the case and it were just about religion in each of their films. And it was like chapter one, here's religion in this film. Chapter two, here's religion. in This and then the book would would become repetitive. Right. Um, so I wanted each each author to look at to take kind of a different angle towards you know, the, defining religion, first of all, and then locating religion in this particular film. And I also wanted the essays to kind of talk to each other a little bit. Um, so um, as part of the editing process, I paired up the, uh, you know, the authors uh, to read each other's work and to kind of comment on it and to rewrite based on the other person's work. Um, and of course, I had obviously, you know, read everyone. So there, there's a little bit of, there's some through lines. Um, so, um now, the, you know, I think it's dangerous when you look at any filmmaker's um, chronology to try to kind of, tr- you know, trace a linear progression from, from you know, simplest ideas to most complicated or from not as good to very good or, or whatever kind of path. Um, uh, because, you know, filmographies are, are, are you know, they're chronological. I mean, they're, it's not just based on the development of the, of the you know, writer-director's own ideas. It's also based on, you know, when is George Clooney available for three months? Or, <laughs> exactly. you know, when does the money come in from the studio? So the order of these films are, is somewhat random. But um, so I don't want to make too much of their order. But I do think the films get more and more um, – sophisticated and also explicit about religion. The last, their last few films have really, as I think I put it in my introduction, they kind of lay their cards on their table right from their first film. You know, they were very interested in religious themes. Um, but I, you know, it was still subtle enough or mixed in with other things that you could sort of make the argument that, um, you know, the religion, we might, you know, a, a, a religious minded critic, maybe just reading too much into it or seeing what they want to see. But by their last, you know, by certainly with um, a serious man in 2010, it was like, this is, 
religion from start to finish. Nothing, yeah. you know, nothing but. And, uh, and same thing with their most recent film, which I hope we could talk about later, even though it didn't really make it into the book, except uh, obliquely, um, Hail Caesar, the movie that came out um, in February of this year. So anyway, so back to the table of contents. Um, the... Um, I kind of divided it into into three sections. They're early films, and that's sort of a more of a straightforward um, looking for religion in their films. But each 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 chapter looks at a kind of a different definition of religion. So religion is morality in Raising Arizona, religion as theology in Miller's Crossing, religion as world creation in Barton Fink, and religion as community in the Hudsucker Proxy. Um, their middle films. Um, I wanted to look at sort of religion and some other important aspect, you know, some, you know, just like many of us teach uh, classes on, you know, religion and race, religion and politics, religion and gender, you know, so that kind of theme, how does religion um, interact? So um, the first one is on um, religion and fandom uh, in the Big Lebowski, Mm. uh, which is sort of the obvious, the obvious choice in many ways, Uh, religion and race in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, religion and money or capitalism in Intolerable Cruelty and the Lady Killers. And those two, those are the only two films that share a chapter just because they're probably the two kind of uh, least successful Coen Brothers films. Right. Uh, and then Religion and the State or Religion and Politics uh, in Burn After Reading. And then the final, um, their final most recent four films uh, are sort of the most, um, I would say, most sophisticated. And so the essayists that I asked to write about them also have the most kind of um, sophisticated, you know, they're, they're more steeped in cultural studies and philosophy. Right. Um, and so they're looking at kind of more subtle themes like transcendence, hermeneutics, um, absence, religious absence and true grit. Um, and then to kind of scaffolding those those three sections are um, my own introduction, where I just kind of introduce the, the basic problem or the basic question of religion in the films of the Coen brothers that, that we'll probably get to later. Um, and then two, what I call intermissions, because, you know, it's like going to a movie or something and you have intermissions. Isn't that clever? But um, <laughs> that look at two films that I think are really important to kind of almost as like keys to unlock the, you know, the understanding of their work at all. The first one is about Fargo. Um, and it asks the question, are the film, you know, are the film, are the Coen brothers moralists or ironists, you know, which is kind of one of the themes running through the book as a whole and it provides a kind of a way to deal with that question that's not just an either or question um and then the um the other kind of intermission is about no country for old men and that really has a rigorous kind of formalist reading of that film um and again that's kind of a key i think to to unlock you know the meaning behind their film is just what when we're looking at patterns of color or light and shadow you know when we forget about like the plot and the characters and we really just look at the the um the formal nature of it what what can what kind of religious meaning can we get so sorry that's a long answer <laughs> Uh, that's not a problem for us, actually. And I think that when you were uh, uh, talking about Fargo and the question of whether they are moralists or ironists, I think that's mm-hmm. a really good uh, transition into my next question, sure. <laughs> if you don't mind. Um, yeah. uh, so many of the essays in this book push back against critical reaction that sees kind of nothing in the Coen brothers' mm-hmm. work. Um, many of these critics levy the kind of all-flash and no-substance argument against the Coens. Uh, and in your intro, you point to like postmodernism as a kind of a boogeyman devil term, uh, as an obstacle for certain religious readers. Um, why is their work so difficult for these readers? And what is your general sense of finding, quote-unquote, meaning in their films? So, yeah, I I think I point to a couple of essays where they – people – have accused the Coen brothers of being postmodern in a kind of a negative way. Now, I, you know, to me, the word postmodern is has has been used and overused. So I have, you know, I'm I, I'm kind of neutral towards it. You know, whatever postmodern means, I'm I'm not. But but for some people, as you said, it is like a boogeyman. You know, if you're postmodern, it means you're a nihilist. It means you believe in nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is again, what exactly what the Coen brothers have have. Uh, I think parodied, you know, by the time they made The Big Lebowski, I think they were already used to being accused of being nihilist, who believe in nothing. And so <laughs> they actually put some of those guys in their movie. Um, so, uh, but, you know, and I think, I think um, when, 
I mean, and this may be uh, this. I, I may be stereotyping um, religious film critics, but you know, they want to see a kind of positive meaning in this film. You know, in in a film, mm-hmm. uh, a, a message, uh, good triumphing over evil, redemption, grace, hope. You know, um, uh, and that's fine. And I think there are those things actually exist in the Coen Brothers movies uh, or some of their movies, but. Um, you know, I think that's it's it's some of their movies. They they you know certainly good does not triumph over evil, or um, we're not quite sure who's good and who's evil um, in the movies, or or good people seem to suffer for for no apparent reason, which of course is a very old problem. The Coen Brothers didn't you know make that up, but um, they don't seem to resolve it as, as neatly. Um, so, and and I think com- when you combine that with the obvious, you know, technical prowess of the Coen brothers. They're, 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 you know, um, you know, right, right. Starting from their very first movie, blood simple, you know, they just, they, they, they're great editors, you know, they edit their movies and they're great editors. They've always used great cinematographers. Their, um, their storyboarding is very, very clear and their, you know, their composition. Um, so people said, Oh, you guys are all, uh, you know, like you said, all flash and no substance, you know, um, all, all technical skill and no meaning. Um, yeah. And so again, in some ways, this book is a way, this whole book is a way to push back against that discourse because, um, it's not so much that the Cone, I think that, you know, the Cone brothers have a, have a one consistent meet, you know, uh, message that they're trying to get across in all their movies. Um, I think all of their movies explore different philosophical, theological, moral problems. Um, I think if you did, I mean, it's kind of, you know, spoiler alert, here's the end of the book. I think if there, if there is a kind of, um, message to the majority of their movies, it is the sort of the, the impossibility of, of, um, coming, you know, finding one meaning uh, to one's actions, you know, the difficulty of, of, of uh, interpretation and kind of the humility required to, to kind of act in this world um, because there are so many meanings. So, I, Well, I think that our listeners are very sympathetic to the idea that um, religious curiosity and, and, and having questions is a religious act in and of itself. Not, and it's not necessarily, if you don't come away with answers, that's not a problem. <laughs> I think that, mm-hmm. I think our listeners are kind of sympathetic to that idea. Um, and, uh, in the book, I mean, uh, I think you touch on this at points in the book. Um, yeah, as you were talking, I mean, I'm thinking about raising Arizona, for example, and the inability of certain, some critics to find any meaning at all in that film. It was seen as just sort of a, 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 a madcap comedy made by two obviously skilled filmmakers. And it's kind of befuddling now to look at that film and not see the religious questions that are being asked <laughs> by it. Um, and, and you do a great job of, of bringing that out in the book, everything from the, the matching tattoos on Nicolas Cage and, and Randall Tex Cobb, uh, the protagonist and the antagonist, there's this weird doubling going on there that asks really profound moral questions. And, uh, and so, yeah, the, uh, I feel like critics who are kind of lost can't get past the um, the postmodernism of those films are really missing um, some profound religious questions even very early on as you say mm-hmm. well um, pretty much everybody acknowledges as we said the Cohen's technical prowess as you say um, whether they like the movies or not uh, can we talk a little bit about how they put that technical skill to use in their engagement with religion and here we can talk about symbols, camera angles, framing, whatever you like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as I, I, I don't know even where, where to start. I mean, in terms of their, their camera angles, um, they're sort of famous, at least in their early films, for their kind of uh, fisheye, kind of wide-angle lens that kind of exaggerates the, the characters, makes them look a little more cartoonish or you know, provides a kind of distancing effect. And they're kind of well-known for their... Um, they're kind of smash zooms where a kind of camera will like chrome across a, a room and, you know, go, uh, go from a long shot to a close up. And I think they actually they, that that particular technique they might have developed when they were working with Sam Raimi, who's famous for the Evil Dead movies, because they they uh, um, were early um, film collaborators. But this always, I always forget that. But you're right. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. 
Yeah, I think uh, Joel was an assistant editor on one of the Evil Dead films. You know, very you know before they made any of their own movies, and they they um, they co-wrote um, maybe uh, you know a crossover there. But the um, I, I, you know in terms of that, I think it's a great question that you ask. I don't know if I have a great answer for it, what the what the religious effect of some of those camera angles are, um, other than you know um, providing a kind of uh, distancing effect or um, objectification of the characters. Um, I think one of the things that the Coen brothers use a lot of, and again, this, they didn't invent this. This is, you know, since the very beginning of cinema and something that was uh, especially perfected in kind of the film noir movies is the, you know, the, the, the play of light and darkness. Right. Yes. You know, um, and that comes out right from their first movie, um, uh, blood simple, you know, kind of their calling card film and, and doing, you know, light and dark is an easy effect to do. You could do it on a low budget. You could do it in black and white or in color. Um, you know, you, you know, to, so, so that's why the kind of the, the film noir, the low budget film noir movies, you know, I think have that. But if you're, um, interested in questions of, of morality, like the Coen brothers clearly are, then it's, you know, it's really interesting or, uh, to to use that kind of technical effect to put characters in light or in darkness, um, it doesn't always mean that you know the good guys are you know shrouded in darkness and and uh, I mean the the bad guys are shrouded in darkness and the and the the good guys are you know bathed in light. I mean that that's and sometimes that that sort of cliche is reversed in the Coen Brothers and light is a place of of danger where anything can happen and darkness is seen as a place of safety. Um, mm. You see that a lot in in No Country for Old Men. Um, the um, other techniques they use they actually use a lot of. Uh, the written word. I think they're, you know, they're they're bibliophiles, and um, Ethan has has written several books of poetry and a book of short stories. Um, and so, in Barton Fink, the the written text of the Bible is very significant. Um, in um, uh, No Country for Old Men, again, you know, probably one of their most sort of formally perfect film. Um, Maps are maps and diagrams are sort of seen on camera being read and interpreted. Um, some of their movies have intertitles, like I'm thinking about um, the um, Oh Brother Where Art Thou. It has kind of those silent movie intertitles, which the cover of my book or the the people at Baylor who designed my book kind of uh, used used that. Yeah, I noticed the that. font there. Yeah, to, to describe. But again, you know those those that that suggests a kind of you know uh, that you're watching an older movie, uh, kind of a period film. But it also suggests the importance of the written word. Um, well, so, not to interrupt are, you, um, but yeah, I'm do. also thinking again, raising Arizona. We recently showed this to our students, and this is why it's probably fresh in my mind. Yeah. But even that obviously or on the surface, at least, um, shallow film, um, the way that uh, high talk is, is very um, – re- I mean, it sounds like old King James English, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, it has – it carries with it this uh, um, uh, religious kind of weight to it, even in that kind of other, otherwise light movie. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and of course, I mean, the Coen brothers are masters of dialogue, you know, and then, and, and maybe Big Lebowski most prominently. It's just, just so many different ways of speaking, you know, that are all competing against each other. Um, you know, different worldviews clashing, you know, the nihilists, the capitalists, right. uh, <laughs> the, the you know the 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 hippies the the art the the postmodern artists um, and they each have a very distinct verbal style. Yeah. Um, in for any in, in English studies, for example, uh, we're you know often in, in, as scholars of literature um, steeped in Mikhail Bakhtin and his mm-hmm. idea of heteroglosia, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that movie is a great example of that in film, uh, the kind of coming together of languages which inhabit their own worlds. Um, mm-hmm. And and in yeah, these are obviously people uh, who know what they're doing <laughs> on the technical scale of it. Um, yeah. And uh, so one thing you were saying though about the uh, the form of uh, literature or the form of film 
being a kind of religious experience in itself. And, and I think that kind of is a nice transition into my next question. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at one point in the book, you provide three kind of general religious approaches to film interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about these uh, and explain about how they guide some of the essays in the book? Sure. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And, and this came out of, uh, you know, my own, I, I've been teaching religion and film classes, I think since I was in, in graduate school. So maybe I started, you know, maybe 14 or 15 years ago. Uh, and a lot of universities now, you know, teach religion and film courses. I think, you know, people, you know, it, it, it's, um, people find that it's a great way to get, to get students talking about religion in a way they wouldn't, ordinarily do so because you know they're used to talking about um films with their friends um so you show a movie um they get them talking about and then you 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 get the the religious ideas in there in any case so and there's over the last couple years there's you know there's been some decent um uh guides to religion and film or, you know, sort of a scholarly overviews of religion and film. I think my favorite is, is Brent Plate's, um, book, religion and film. Um, but, uh, you know, and so what, what are the different possible approaches, uh, you know, various scholars have kind of tried to come up with that. And, and to me, they kind of boil down to three. I mean, there's, there's different ways you can, you can parse them, but, you know, I, I think in my book, I say there's religion in film, religion is film, and film as religion. Uh, religion in film is kind of the most straightforward, uh, what probably most people think of uh, when they think of religion in film, which is just kind of religious representation in film, religious content in film. You know, here's here's a Catholic church in a film. Here's a rabbi being represented. You know, here's a biblical allusion. Um, you know, here's uh, is is uh, are the Muslim characters fairly or unfairly represented in this film? You know, those those types of questions, kind of um, surface level, right? Yeah, and there's a lot there's a lot there because you can learn a lot about, you know, representation is really important in our society, and that's how you know so so many people get their information about religion through films. So, um, you know, the question of representation is important, but it's just yeah, again, it looks at kind of the obvious um, content. Um, and, you know, I think, like I said before, the, the first third of my book, you know, the, the chapters deal with, you know, sort of the many religious illusions in, um, for example, Raising Arizona, which, as you pointed out, seems like kind of a silly comedy. But, you know, look, if you look just a little bit beyond the surface, uh, but still on kind of just a basic level, there's so many there's so many uh, illusions uh, um, so many moral questions and so forth. Um, the, um, you know, and, and if you just look, let's look, let's look at music, for example. I mean, so many of their soundtracks have um, religious songs in them, you know, right. including um, The Lady Killers, True Grit, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I mean, their soundtracks, which are just great. You know, I encourage people to download those soundtracks and just listen to them. I mean, they're, they're really well curated, uh, um, you know, with a lot of really wonderful religious music on it. Um, Sometimes they have subtle visual clues, you know, um, in their movies, religious with, with, you know, just quick um, religious representations. I think I mentioned uh, their movie Inside Lewin Davis. Um, they're... Two of the there's a there's a couple you know in the film married Upper West Side professors and their 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 uh, apartment is decorated with um, Hanukkah menorahs right so right. it's never reflected on but that you know that just gives you a little bit more depth of, as to who the characters are where they're coming from what their religious or cultural values may be um, so the second um, common definition now moving on is religion is film which kind of looks at um, basically looking at the metaphysics and theology of film style that, you know, film is concerned with certain ideas that religion is also concerned with, you know, certain, some of the big questions that religion asks, um, film asks those same, those same big questions. Right. And so, um, you know, if you want to look at sort of the classical canon of religion and film, um, you know, you would, you know, and you, you, you can find a lot of kind of deep theological analyses of European art films, you know, films by Bergman or Fellini, um, uh, you know, that, that look at their kind of the theology behind these films. Um, and I think there's a lot of that in the Coen Brothers movies. And just to um, interrupt again, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. For listeners of this podcast, you may remember an episode from, uh, I think, last year that the Christian Humanist podcast did about the seventh seal. Uh, and that's yeah. a really good example, I think, of what um, exactly. Elijah's talking about right now. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, that. so um, and I think people are just now realizing that the Coen brothers could be up to that level. I mean, you know, they, they, they've, I think, reached a, a mark where they can be considered as as prolific and as and as profound um, as as a Bergman, you know, and I don't I'm not I don't want to make any kind of, you know, uh, pronouncements you know, <laughs> or anything like from on high. But, you know, um, they're they're, uh, you know, they're they're that good, I think. Yeah. Uh, the um, and so, uh, you know, films like uh, Miller's Crossing um, or No Country for Old Men, which seem to be kind of genre films, you know, they're kind of violent uh, uh, gangster films or action films. They really demand to be explored using, you know, really looking at their sort of the deep metaphysical and theological themes embedded in their film. Um, and I think the two that stand out there are uh, The Man Who Wasn't There and The um, uh, A Serious Man. Yeah. You know, which, um, those are the two that, that, that um, you know, probably as uh, a lot of people love those movies. You know, they, they're, they're their favorite films, but they're probably their least commercially successful. Right. You know, <laughs> the films. So there's probably a reason why, because, you know, there's the, there, you really have to buy into the, the, the theological questioning in those two films because um, they're not particularly funny, although there's, you know, a lot of black humor in them. Um, and then the, the third definition, film as religion, um, is kind of the idea that the film-going experience has kind of replaced um, religious commitments in, in the modern world that, you know, um, or, or supplemented it. So the idea of, you know, going to a movie itself is kind of like a going is a kind of, you know, uh, a secular church, you know, um, um, becoming a, uh, and, and then there's, there, there's the whole question of film fandom and how film, you know, being a, a film fan can be a kind of religious experience. And, and there's been a lot of work done on, you know, the, the star Wars movies, the Lord of the Rings movies, and, you know, the Harry Potter books and movies and the, you know, the real rich fandom communities and the way those really sort of function as a kind of modern religion. Um, the Coen brothers, you know, as, as we already alluded to a little bit, uh, you know, they, they, um, released the their movie The Big Lebowski in I want to say 1990 1998 uh it was and it didn't do that well I mean it was you know and it just kind of went away but then you know as it was as it sort of circulated on on um on uh, VHS and 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 DVD it became really the all-time kind of great cult film of the uh late 20th and early 21st century um you know um one of the, you know, probably taking over from Rocky Horror Picture Show as right. kind of film going as a participatory experience, you exactly. know, where it's a real full-blown religious ritual. And really one of the only movies, except for Star Wars, um, that has actually created a religion in its name. You know, Star Wars has, has Jediism and... Um, the Big Lebowski has um, Dudism, or the church, also known as Church of the Latter-day Dude, which, sure, it's a it's a joke religion. I mean, it's funny. It's meant to be humorous, but people have joined it. People, people, um, you know, you can you can become ordained and and uh, maybe in some states perform marriages as a Dudist priest. I had a student last semester show me his uh, ordination card for Dudism. Actually, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's that's quite a feather in the cap of the Cohen brothers. I mean. Um, so, uh, so that, so, so those are the three definitions that I think can apply to a lot of different, you know, um, you know, mo most movies, but, but they all apply to one extent to another, to, to the Coen brothers movies. Um, that's not necessarily just the way that the book itself is organized, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, but, um, I think it's, a hold on for a second. um, you know, I think those are those, um, if you're trying to explain to somebody, you know, well, what is the relationship between religion and film? Then that, then that three-way, uh, three-part definition is a good place to start. Yeah, and it, and it moves beyond just sort of looking for Christ figures, for example, right? Um, uh, right. And, and as religious uh, scholarship, um, and yeah, um, I think that that's uh, a terrific um, summary. And I think you're right about the Big Lebowski as being this sort of uh, corporate worship experience, Lebowski Fest in Louisville, and I think there are actually ancillary Lebowski Fests all over the country now, but mm -hmm. in Louisville, Kentucky, is where it began. Uh, it very much is. Uh, it, uh, well, uh, the listeners of this podcast 
by I note and no doubt are familiar with James K. A. Smith's Desiring the Kingdom, um, where he talks about things like going to the mall as worship experiences, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and certainly going to the movies in the way that. Big Lebowski fans go to that movie. That is a corporate worship experience. <laughs> and, and, and there's a, a terrific essay in the book about that, actually. So, um, well, uh, in, the essay, or in the essay that you co-wrote with uh, Brent Plate about Barton Fink, you okay. really compellingly examine the difficulties of interpretation uh, in the Coen brothers' work. Uh, can we use that film to talk about the problems that, Cohen's, that the Coen's work has presented? Yeah, so um, Martin Fink is one of my favorite uh, films of the, the Coen brothers, so it's the, I kind of you know saved it for myself. I took editor's privilege to save it to myself to write about. Uh, and then um, I asked um, you know uh, someone I really deeply admire for their work on religion film, one of the pioneers in, in the field, to, to, to um, uh, collaborate on that chapter with me. And, and um, he... He's kind of moved away from doing kind of analysis of individual films, you know, his latest books. Uh, he just wrote a book on um, a history of religion and five and a half objects. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, no, no. Oh, book. Well, that'd be great. If you can get uh, 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 Brent to, to, um, to appear on your podcast. I mean, if you, if you read that book and find it, and find it worthwhile, as I think you would. Um, we will put him on the list. Yeah, yeah, and, and then contact him. To, to, you know, he, he, you know. So, it, so in any case, you know, so that's a much wider uh, sort of. It's a, it's a kind of an introductory book to um, religion and materiality, and it uses. Um, there's a chapter on bread and a chapter on stones and a chapter on drums. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, the point is, he doesn't usually write any more about religion. Uh, you know, and a specific film. He used to do that 10 or 15 years ago, but he, like me, loves Barton Fink so much that he, you know, said, I'll do it. You know, let's, 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 let's throw this thing together. Um, and so we each wrote pieces of it and then tried to stitch those pieces together into a whole. Um, and I, you know, I think, you know, you're right that, um, you know, Barton Fink is in some ways about the difficulties of interpreting not just Barton Fink, but the Cohen's work in general. Um, and the, um, I think already by the time, you know, the story, the kind of the origin story of Barton Fink that, you know, has been told many times by the Coen brothers or by people who, who know them is that they were working on, um, the screenplay for Miller's Crossing, their previous film. And they, and they, um, encountered, um, a, a huge case of writer's block. They just, they just couldn't finish, you know, Miller's Crossing, which is kind of a complicated film about crossing and double crossing and triple crossing. Um, and again, it has wonderful, like you said, you know, it's, um, I don't like to just like look for the Christ figure in every movie, but I think, um, uh, I think with the exception of course, of, uh, their most recent movie, um, Hail Caesar, where there's an you know a couple of obvious Christ figures. I think the I think the movie that lends itself most to that type of analysis, and and Carrie Mitchell in my book does a great job on it, is is Miller's Crossing, and mm. and the main character played by Gabriel Byrne as a type of um, Christ figure, and it's and it's kind of so obvious because people are constantly um, uh, saying his name, Tommy, and then and then. Jesus. They're like, Jesus, Tommy, Jesus. I mean, you know, it's just like literally 30 times. You know. So in any case, uh, this is a, Miller's Crossing is a movie with a really complicated plot or a really interesting kind of like subverted Christ figure going on. And apparently the Coen brothers had a really hard time finishing the screenplay. So what they did is they took a break from that and they really quickly wrote a movie about writer's block. Hmm. And that's Barton Fink. Barton Fink is about a left-wing um, playwright who's enjoyed some success on Broadway in the in the late 30s, early 40s, um, gets an offer to come to Hollywood. Um, and as a lot of you know novelists and screenwriters did, they were kind of seduced by the by the the money and the the weather of Hollywood and so forth. He comes to Hollywood and he's put to work on a on a B movie, a wrestling picture. <laughs> Um, and he has writer's block. He can't start, he can't get started on that. Um, and then horrible things start happening to him. And you wonder if the whole thing is a dream. Is it all in his head? Um, you know, is it, is it, is, is he in hell now? Is this a vision of hell? Um, so, um, and I think the, the Coen brothers, you know, deliberately made this movie, about the difficulties of interpreting anything, you know, the movie. So it's a, it's a movie that they kind of exercise their, 
their demons and writer's block by saying, you know, here's a here's a movie about a writer who can't write because he's stuck too much in his own head, because yeah. he's constantly trying to interpret things. And so maybe that's, you know, that, that movie itself is a uh, is a kind of um, warning you know, sign to to viewers of their films or to critics who, who want to overanalyze or, or who want to overinterpret, and in doing so are, re- are really living too much in their own head. Yeah. You know? And uh, at one point in the book, uh, again, going back to Miller's Crossing, you talk about that opening scene with the hat blowing away and, yeah, and yeah. Tom has this uh, dream about his hat and someone wants to make an interpretation and he stops it off and says, it, it stayed a hat. It didn't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that kind of warning against overreading is uh, mm-hmm. it seems to be on their mind, and also I think that this is something they revisit at more length in *A Serious Man*, which I want to yes. talk about later on yeah. here. Yeah. Um, well, at, at one point in that essay, you use the analogy of, uh, of a Russian doll to explain right. your reading of Barton Fink, and if, if it's okay, I'd like to read a, a bit of that uh, do. paragraph. Uh, It says, we can think of the scenes of the film itself as a series of boxes that are stacked, Russian doll-like, within each other, just as we might think of sacred space in religious worlds as nested. There is this place called Los Angeles, but within that is the Hotel Earl. Within that is Room 621. Within that is Fink, of course, but also ultimately a box. The box is a box within a box within a box. Uh, Like sacred spaces, the levels of sacrality and thus taboo and danger grow more fierce the further one goes in further in one goes um uh in that same essay you frame this religious reading of barton fink uh in an interesting way uh, exploring the film as an act of world creation mm-hmm. um how does the russian doll metaphor explain that aspect of this film Sure. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a that's a well, really well written paragraph, and I didn't write it. That was ah. part. That was that was Brent's contribution. <laughs> um, so yeah. So if you're not familiar with Barton Fink, the uh, you know, first of all, go out and and, and watch it right away. It's it's. Uh, but yeah, besides, um, it's it's as as uh, Brent put it there in the part that you just read. Um, it's set in Los Angeles, um, although. There are very few establishing shots of Los Angeles. We don't see the Hollywood sign or anything, and so there's some evidence that um, the the world of Los Angeles could be all you know could be all imagined by Barton Fink um, once he leaves New York. Uh, there's this really wonderfully decorated, um, creepy old hotel, the Hotel Earl, that mm-hmm. kind of must rank up there with the Overlook in the movie The Shining is kind of a you know creepy hotels and movies. Um, and then there's his particular room that has, you know, the wallpaper is peeling, uh, and there's kind of wallpaper glue seeping out of the, the you know. Uh, then there's Barton himself, and then he actually receives a box. I won't sort of uh, go into the plot mechanics, but at one point in the movie, he receives uh, a box wrapped in plain brown paper, and there's some evidence that inside the box is actually a human head. We never know that for sure. It's part of the, the difficulty of interpreting. So, so um it's all taking place in his head, and then there's a, a city and a hotel and a room and a box, and inside is another head. Um, so, so Russian dolls, you know, layers, you know, nesting Russian dolls, layers within layers. Um, and so I think what Brent was getting at with this idea of sacrality is that, um, you know, in a lot of religious traditions, there's this idea of, you know, the there's um, – the outside world, there's the temple, but then there's some kind of inner temple. There's some kind of inner sanctum inside. There's the, you know, that only the priests can go into. You can see this in, uh, you know, the, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Mm. You know, there's there's the world, there's the sacred land of Israel. There's Within that, there's this, you know, the center of Jerusalem. Within that, there's the temple. And then within that, there's the very inner sanctum, um, which, you know, sort of a, a, the, the biggest mystery of all and, and the, the most sacred place. And again, we don't know what, you know, for most people, we don't know what's in that. You can see that and in um, some some Asian religions, I, I, I write sometimes on Taoism, and there's a kind of inner level where only the Taoist priest is allowed to go in. Mm-hmm. For example, and there's probably other examples that, that that your listeners may be familiar with. So, and I don't think I'm not I'm not really thinking that that's what the the Coen brothers had in mind when they were creating this movie. Although you never know, they you know they're, they're smart smart guys. I don't know what they had in mind or not. I'd love to talk to them someday. <laughs> um, that that hasn't happened yet. Um, but um, 
you know, I think, um, I think, you know, the, the, the metaphor of like living inside your own head or, you know, get out of your head, you're living too much in your head. You think too much, you know, that's probably something that, that some of us may, may have heard, you know, cause we're all, most of us probably listening to this are, are scholars or are researchers or writers. And that's probably something the Coen brothers, um, you know, probably heard a lot. Uh, so, so in the, in the sort of the short introduction to religion and film that, that Brent plate, um, uh, wrote uh, a couple years ago. Um, he he kind of compares um, he he compares films and religions because both are acts of world creation, mm-hmm. right? Films, you know, a religion creates a world, um, and and this he, he borrows from um, scholars like William Payton and Peter Berger. The idea of what a religion does is it creates a plausible reality, a cosmos um, that that has, you know that that, that we can believe in um and films do this too through um if if religion does this through through myth through ritual you know films do this through uh cinematography through editing um they create sort of plausible worlds that we can inhabit for 90 minutes or two hours and you know most movies do this This isn't just religious films that do this or Coen brothers films this is you know any film and 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 in in brent Plate's book, he, you know, uses examples from Star Wars, The Matrix, but he also uses um, Chocolat. Um, he uses some, uh, he uses Baraka, the, the kind of, um, that by, by Ron Frick, that uh, not really a documentary, but, you know, kind of a movie. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that film, Baraka, but. No, um, right, but... Oh, it's, it's a, put another, put that on your list. It's kind of a, a nonfiction essay about the world, and uh, it's got a Philip Glass soundtrack, and it just kind of, uh, it's, 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 anyway, it's, okay. it's, hard, it's, it's hard to describe. You can, you can cut that out. But, so is the it, point is. Is it about Mar- Amiri Baraka, the poet? Or? No, oh, no. Okay. But, um, Baraka is, uh, it's like a Sufi term for blessing or breath. It's, it's where Baruch, you know, Baruch comes from the I word, see. the Hebrew word Baruch. So he, he based it on that. Um, uh, it doesn't really have a, a subject at all. It's kind of like a day in the life of a, of a planet. So you just oh. see all different scenes of people in factories and, and nature and animals, um, all kind of inter, you know, so it's a, a kind of a head trip movie. Okay. In any case, it's something that Brent Play talks about in his book, uh, uh, religion and film, cinema and the recreation of the world, um, that this essay on Barton Fink is, is inspired by. Um, so, but why I think Barton Fink, you know, what, what, what I love about Barton Fink is, is it actually shows you the danger of solipsistically creating your own world of creating a world of an artist, creating their own world. Um, and, uh, without without any genuine human contact, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Barton Fink is kind of he sees himself, you know, kind of egotistically as a as a solitary writer, um, and he longs for human contact. And there's some scenes in the movie where he achieves it, but he really doesn't really understand other human beings, right? Which which makes him, I think, a failure as a writer, you know. Um, so. Uh, but he, he, he sees himself as creating a world in his own head. And really what that world turns out to be is hell. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the end of the movie, Barton Fink, and again, without giving away too much of the plot, um, in the end of the movie, his world literally goes up in flames, you know, and it's this kind of, um, and it becomes very surrealistic. Uh, you're not sure quite, quite why his hotel room is suddenly engulfed in flames. Um, but, you know, again, if you're going through this kind of metaphor as, as you know, he, um, he's the solitary artist creating a, a world, then, you know, that world is sort of sterile and, and becomes kind of hell-like. Mm. So um, that's... Uh, I'll, let me um, skip a little bit to one of your one of your next questions. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to it later. But but that's why Barton Fink is probably my personal favorite Coen Brothers movie. It's not necessarily what I think is their best movie of all time, sure, or the one that I think is the most entertaining. Um, and those all I can you know I'll tell you what those are later if you want. But in terms of a personal favorite, I I, I see it as you know the one I've seen the most and the one I get the most out of because it's kind of a warning to to people like me, people who tend to live too much in my own head because I'm, I'm a, I'm a, you know, an, an academic or a writer and it's saying, you know, um, be careful of that egotism of living in your own head and be careful of the lack of human connection. So in that way, it does have kind of the moral that, uh, these moralizing kind of critics want to see. You just have to yeah. dig through to find well, the moral. 
So in that way, it does have the moral that these moralizing critics are wanting to see. It's just sort of encoded in the form of the film. And, and you use a term, a, a formal term that I was unfamiliar with, uh, mise en abime. Am I saying it correctly? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Um, if you could explain that. I mean, this is sort of a, a formal term about sort of a, a part representing the whole, if you can explain that better than I just did. Yeah, that's another um, uh I think that that's another part of the of the essay that that uh, Brent Plate wrote, uh, although kind of based on my general uh, outline of the of the whole essay. But that term about mise en abîme, yeah, exactly, is where um, the movie itself. You know, it, it's almost looking at something like a hol- you know a holograph. And I'm, I don't know really anything about holographs. My understanding is each you know a, a holograph is you know each little each part of a holograph contains the whole. You know, yeah. the information of the whole image is contained in the whole. Um, and so, for example, in Barton Fink, um, uh, the very first scene of Barton Fink is uh, backstage at a Broadway play, which Barton Fink has written, and you hear the last few lines of the movie, uh, I'm sorry, of the, of the play being recited by the actors, and you see Barton Fink kind of backstage in the wings listening to his actors deliver his line of, lines of dialogue. And then you, you know, there's the applause from the audience and then there's the curtain call. And it's supposed to represent a very successful opening night in Broadway. But if you listen to the dialogue in the film, I mean, the dialogue of the, the, the people are, uh, the actors are, are saying, it actually represents that little, you know, one minute, you know, slice of, of dialogue from the end of a play, which just sort of sets the scene of the movie, actually contains the entire movie, yeah. um, the entire Barton Fink in, in microcosm. Um, it sort of tells you everything you need to know about about Barton Fink, the movie. Um, and it took it took me many viewings before I, I realized that. You know, yeah. um, but that's an example of the part containing the whole. And after uh, reading that essay, I, I rewatched some of that movie again last week, and I noticed that as one of the actors is coming off stage, um, Barton Fink sort of goes out of his way to avoid eye contact, and you sort of see yeah. the disconnect that he, you were talking about yeah. earlier um, that also um, is really the whole of his, his personality. Um, that, that was really a, 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 a terrific reading of that film. And also, uh, and this is just me personally, I, I, it's been, it had been years since I'd seen that movie. Um, um, the opening image of the movie on the credits is actually of the wallpaper uh, in his yes, uh, in his yes. apartment. And for someone who teaches anybody, anyone who teaches um, introduction to literature courses most assuredly teaches the story "The Yellow Wallpaper" by Charlotte yeah, right. uh, And uh, and to me that. I, that's what I was thinking of as the the theme of that short story um, contributing to its use in Barton Fink as well, because you have these patterns in which the person inside the room becomes trapped. And, 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 mm-hmm. I, and, and I think that that was a little uh, literary illusion <laughs> that I picked up on. Yeah, um, I didn't even. <laughs> based on reading that essay uh, of yours, I thought I was sort of looking for those kinds of things. And it was really, really, really helpful. Um, well, my uh, favorite film of the Coens, and one of my favorite films, actually, is uh, A Serious Man. Um, and the essay in your book about that movie focuses on hermeneutics through exploring five themes in the film. And it's actually really, um, really interesting and really helpful as well. But what I find endlessly fascinating about that movie is the two little mini films, uh, speaking mm-hmm. of mise en abime, right? So the the first of these uh, little mini films is a, uh, a kind of non-diegetic mini film literally about a Dybbuk, which is this sort of Jewish evil spirit um, visiting these people in a shtetl. And, uh, and then the film just cuts forward to an entirely different time and place. And then in the middle, one of the rabbis that the main character visits tells this really fascinating story that is represented in the form of a mini film uh, called The Goy's Tea. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I just, since I have you on the phone, <laughs> I would love to have your reaction yeah. to those films. Yeah, and I... Don't yeah, I, I can give you my reaction, but I think there's there my reactions aren't gonna be anything especially deep or probably stuff you haven't thought about yourself. I mean, I asked um a colleague, Gabe, Gabe Levy, to to do the you know, who's who's an expert in, in rabbinics and cognitive science and uh you know, to cause um you know, I think a, a, a serious man really shows the Cohen's at their most sort of it's 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 above my pay grade to put 
but in another way. You know, yeah. what I mean? um, it's almost like uh, too rich. You know, too rich for my blood. Um, but um, the to me both. Both stories, you know, kind of the moral, if there are morals of these stories, is something I think I mentioned earlier about what might be the overriding theme of all of their movies, which is kind of the limits of human um, interpretability or, you know, um, just the fact that we, we cannot understand uh, um, the meaning of, of a given situation. And so we have to act in some ways without with humility. Uh, so the, the, the Dybbuk story... Um, the husband brings in uh, uh, an, an old man who he thinks is, is is a lost cold man. The woman thinks he's actually a ghost, an evil spirit that the man himself died years ago, and he's now kind of roaming the earth. And and um, even after the woman stabs him, we're not quite sure if he and, and he leaves. We're not sure if in fact he he left to go off to die, or if he is in fact an evil spirit. So um, it's a story about, you know, we, we still don't know the answer. Um, we still can't interpret. Um, so it's actually kind of a, an example of something that comes up later in the film um, because the main character, uh, Goff, Larry Gopnik, is a, is a physics professor, and at one point he explains um, um, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle yes. in Schrodinger's Cat. And in some ways the Dybbuk, um, played by the great old um, uh, Yiddish actor, you know, uh, uh, Fivish Finkel, who you know, who is a kind of a, a, a star of the New York uh, Yiddish theater yes. scene. Um, that that character, we don't know, is he alive or is he dead? You know, is he a Dybbuk or is he uh, who's who's you know already dead, the kind of the Walking Dead, or or is he an old man who gets stabbed because of a wife superstition? So um, it's another, it's kind of a modern example of, of Shredinger's cat. The, the cat is both alive and dead. Yes. Um, and the goy's teeth, kind of the whole point of it is it has absolutely no, you know, uh, final interpretation at all, you know, of that of, of the story, um, both within the context of the story itself and the reason for the rabbi telling this to Mr. Gopnik doesn't seem to be clear at all either. So um, so that's my, I mean, and that, again, I don't think that's a, like a particularly deep take on it. It just seems like um, a good way to start. And the other thing is, this is where the Cohen brothers are trying to sort of put so much um, Jewish culture into the movie. You know, I think I've 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 argued that, you know, the the um, uh, I mean, a serious man has so much um, Jewish knowledge, Jewish culture, Jewish rituals. You know, in one relatively short movie. I mean, of course, it's an exploration of Jewish life in, you know, Minnesota. It also is the, their most autobiographical film because the Coen brothers were about the same age as the son in the movie, A Serious Man. Um, so it makes sense then if they're going to have kind of little, like a little introductory feature that it would be a kind of uh, shtetl story, a kind of, you know, tale, like a kind of uh, Isaac Besheva singer, you know, type kind of Yiddish folktale. Very much. Um, you know, even though it's not, like you said, it's not. Uh, connected directly with the movie um so i mean that yeah i hope that i mean maybe I, i'd like to hear your reading of these you know well, you might have better ideas than i do well i don't know about that but I, I i do think i mean i feel like the fact that it's you have to do interpretive work to connect that dybbuk story with the rest of the film puts you in the position that larry finds himself in the whole movie like where he is wanting definitive answers right and the, with the goy's yeah. teeth the the last yeah. thing the rabbi says was who cares what happened to the goy <laughs> right um like not only uh is there no answer to the seek for the answer is actually a little like it's the wrong thing to do it's silly it's silly to do and so i feel like it's almost there to tempt you into uh larry's own uh epistemological position that, that he finds himself in in this uh in this movie. And, and so I find it to be subversive and yet utterly meaningful. And this is one of those places where I feel like they are being ironic and yet that ironic serves a moral purpose uh, that, iro mm -hmm. that ironicism, excuse me, serves mm -hmm. a moral Andy. purpose. <laughs> and I, and I think right. it's uh, uh, that's the way that they actually use postmodernism to create meaning. It's actually a subversive use of postmodernism, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that uh, this is one of those movies that is just endlessly fascinating to me. And I, and I do think that that little, whatever, three or four minute uh, Goy's teeth section of the movie is for me some of the finest filmmaking they ever did. I, I feel like mm -hmm. that is such a perfectly executed little film inside the film um, that I think that it's uh, 
uh, it's one of their highest achievements. And so mm. if you haven't, like you said, this is not one of their popular films, but if you yeah. have not seen it, it's really worth your time as particularly as people who are interested in religion and film, as you say, mm-hmm. um, this is a form of religious uh, or Jewish world building. Um, as, as Brent plate would put it, um, this is a, a religious act in and of itself in recreating sort of Jewishness, from you know the the past to the present to the future, and I, I think it's it's a really uh, fascinating film. But that's just my little, <laughs> little hobby horse, yeah, I suppose. We're talking far. about the Coens, um, and you. So Barton Fink is your favorite uh, Cohen movie. Um, what are some other ones that you would recommend then? And and sure. Why? Yeah. Um, so, like, yeah, Barton Fink is sort of my personal favorite. I know I recognize that it's you know it's not for everybody. Um, uh, it's but um, I think on my other personal favorite on um, uh, just a sheer sort of movie watching pleasure is um, Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Mm. Uh, that's one of probably their most one of their most family friendly movies. You know, some of their movies contain kind of some some shocking violence that may not be great for kids. Um, but this one is 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 good for the whole family. Um, it's a fun, you know, on one level, of course, you know, most obviously it's been interpreted as kind of a, a, a Homer's Odyssey set in Depression era Mississippi. Um, and in fact, the um, the title credit says, you know, based upon the Odyssey by Homer. And in fact, the the movie was nominated for best adapted screenplay based on the Odyssey. And I mean, and of course there are. I mean, it's fun, you know, if you know anything about the Odyssey, uh, you know, there's seven or eight very obvious references to the Odyssey. There's, you know, Circe the Witch and there's the Cyclops and there's, um, you know, Scylla and Charybdis, and there's the Blind Soothsayer, and there's some other ones that I'm forgetting right now. Right. Um, so I know it's shown in, you know, classics classes where they read the Odyssey, and um, or if you have, you know, um, kids that are reading that. So that's, so that's you know, that, that sort of makes it one fun, you know, kind of, you know, uh, that's the Coen brothers giving you something to interpret, saying, look, here, you want to interpret something, let's, 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 let's throw some references in it to the Odyssey. But... Um, it's I'm really I, you know for a long time I've been really interested in American culture and music and kind of the formation of American culture and how race plays a part in that um, and and Oh Brother has so many interesting things to say about that right you know so so many wonderful things to say about how American popular mu- uh, music and culture more generally is really the product of racial mixing right I mean right. which is something that cultural critics have been saying and you know people have analyzed um, music but this kind of puts it in a kind of uh, film film format and and um, uh, it uh, has a lot of great music in it in fact the music you know the soundtrack to oh brother inspired a kind of whole kind of mini renaissance of bluegrass and old-time music the soundtrack was a bestseller and they the the people who performed on the soundtrack people like Alison Krauss uh, went on to do a, a concert you know tour um, based on the music from the movie. So, you know, there's just so many pleasures in that movie. And George Clooney is hilarious in it. Yeah. Um, it has great uh, – uh, there's other references to, uh, to, to to The Wizard of Oz and, you know, yes. if you know where to look. So, so that's, that's another one. Um, the third um, movie and kind of my personal favorite Coen Brothers canon is the one that just came out in February uh, called Hail Caesar, which um, – Apparently, you know, didn't do that well at the box office. I think it closed in my local theater um, in Charleston, South Carolina, after like two weeks. And, you know, it didn't do that well critically. I mean, people kind of said, oh, this is kind of Coen Brothers light. It's not really, it didn't feel that deep. Um, it felt kind of episodic. There are a lot of fun little, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a movie set in um, 1951 Hollywood about kind of a studio executive and kind of a day in the life of him trying to. Um, trying to manage the studio, trying to deal with kidnapped movie stars and scandals and um, actors who can't act and just doing all the things that a studio fixer has to do. It's actually based on a real character. uh, Josh Brolin plays Eddie Mannix, and there was a real Eddie Mannix. Um, But uh, when I saw it the first time, my my jaw was on the floor. I was literally jawed because there was so much religion in it, you know, cause this movie came out after the book was already at the publishers. Yeah. Right. So I didn't know, you know, and, and this movie really kind of, um, proves everything I've been trying to say that the Coen brothers have been, you know, concerned with religion all along. And this is a movie, not just that has a lot of religion in it, but, um, it has, 
Um, it's a movie about the the different relationships between religion and film. You know, it's it's. I feel like they've read you know religion and film scholarship. I mean, they probably haven't. They're just you know intelligent enough to to posit it on their own. Yes, um, and I, I sadly because it went out so quickly, I didn't get to see it. Um, and I'm still waiting for that to hit uh, DVD. And, yeah, I think uh, it came out on DVD uh, early June. So, so <laughs> I guess yeah, yeah. I said I wasn't waiting that uh, patiently. Then, so yeah, um, no, but that is definitely. Uh, I'm very interested in that movie uh, for the reasons that you're saying. I think that um, it reminds me then of how this is a nice maybe way to end the, this interview. Um, like at the beginning of the the podcast we were talking about um the inability of critics to find the depth that's really there in some of the coen brothers films um surfaces from time to time and when we're used to seeing obviously profound things like say a serious man or barton fink um and then we are confronted with something light um critics are not necessarily willing for whatever reason to sort of look into the depths of of what's actually there um and i think if anything the coen brothers teach us it's that there's often the 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 real meaning is in seemingly meaningless (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, um, well, Elijah, thanks so much for uh, uh, taking the time. This book, again, is called um, Cohen Framing Religion in Amoral Order, and it's edited by Elijah Siegler. Um, and I really uh, learned a lot from talking to you today, and um, I recommend the book tremendously to anyone who wants to, to learn more about film. These are um, short essays that really um, – give you material to help you understand um, something uh, that's really kind of important about these films and about the way that film in general can really contribute to our religious experience. Um, uh, Any last uh, thoughts for you? Uh, Danny, yeah, it's been a pleasure to to talk with you. And um, like I said, yeah, I mean, don't write... If, if my what you know this uh, podcast you know uh, uh, compels you to to buy the book, that'd be great. But 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 also go and watch or rewatch all their movies again. I mean, they're endlessly rewatchable. Um, and uh, you know, then 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 talk about them with 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 people you like. You know, it's. You won't regret it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's really one of the great pleasures of it for me is that it's really prompted me to dig back into those films. Happened to come at a really good time as our department is doing this film series anyway. Um, but, yeah, it's been uh, it's been really a tremendous find for me. Um, and, again, Elijah Siegler, uh, Associate Professor of Religion at the College of Charleston. Um, thank you again for, for your time.